All right. Man, you all, you gotta you gotta give me a second to take this one in. This is this is a first for Pastor Ryan. Uh, like I said uh, when we started, I just wanted to thank every single one of you for coming out because uh, for 17 weeks now, it has felt very not right. Uh, but God in His providence has given us something that that not every other church has, which is 16 acres of property. And so because we have something that not everybody else has. We are able to do something that not everybody else can do. And so, with great pleasure, I welcome you to our very first outdoor service ever, something that we are calling Church in the Open. Uh, amen. I think that's worth clapping about, too. So today, we are going to begin a brand new series out of the book of Acts. And before I, I get into the passage we're going to be walking through today, I wanted to explain why Acts. I think it's safe to say that the last few months, regardless of, of what they've looked like for you specifically, the last few months have been challenging uh, simply because what we've all experienced, I think at its core, is just an interruption to life as we knew it before COVID. Uh, whatever your routine was before the world kind of changed what felt like overnight, the life you were living has been interrupted. And for all the challenges that we have been faced with, one thing that, that I'm convinced this period of time has given us in pausing life as we knew it is the ability to reflect on the lives that we were living and to ask ourselves, really critically think and ask ourselves if that's the life that we want to return to. And so to me, this, this, um, the mindset to have in all of this, in this situation, is not one that sort of uncritically is just rushing back uh, with a desire to get back to life as we knew it before. To me, this is a time uh, to recalibrate. This is a time uh, to be refreshed. And this is a time uh, to be renewed. And, and really, that uh, so much in, in so many ways, that serves as the foundation for why we're going to look through the book of Acts. Uh, because there is there really no, for Christians, there is really no better book in the Bible than the book of Acts for uh, recalibrating us and reminding us of what we need to prioritize in life and really what the meaning of life and the purpose of life is. Because the book of Acts, more so than any other book in the Bible, really takes us back to the heart of what it means and what it should look like to be a follower of Jesus. And so in seeing what that looks like, we have the opportunity to then reflect on our own lives and ask ourselves which areas we need to change. And so my desire for us as a church, first and foremost, is that through this book and through this summer, we would be recalibrated, refreshed, and renewed in all the ways that God desires. But in saying that, I think it's really important to mention on the front end here that Acts, and, and this is one of the things that makes it unique as a, as a New Testament book, Acts was not simply written um, for people who are already convinced believers. Acts, by the words of the author himself, was actually a book that was written to engage and even to persuade skeptics. And so if I can just kind of bottom line this series introduction by saying this, I'll just say that, that my desire this summer as we begin to gather together again and, and walk through the book of Acts is that your life and my life would be recalibrated, refreshed, and renewed in all the ways that it needs to be. And so with that, I want to get to... Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I just got to pause here. It is so wild to stand here right now and, and hear my voice echo off of trees 
I just didn't think this would ever be something that I would get to do. This is about, I I love that we're looking at the early church now because this is literally about as close to them as we're going to get outdoors talking about what God has done for us through Jesus. So let me read it to you. I'm in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and it says this. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he'd given orders through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was together with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. This, he said, is what you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he'd said this, he was taken up as they were watching And a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven. And suddenly, two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? And I don't know how you read this next part without smiling. This Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. This is God's word. So what, what I want to do today is, is uh, I, I just want to, this is, this is as simple as it gets, but all I want to look at today is the purpose of the church and its two sources of power. And with that, I want to get right into uh, the body of this message. Uh, first off, the purpose of the church, this is going to be our first idea today, it's that Jesus' work continues through the church. And we see this right in the first verse of the book of Acts. It says, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So first off, the book of Acts is written by Luke. And when he says, I wrote the first narrative, uh, he's referring to his gospel account. And so when Luke says in verse 1 here that, it, that in his first narrative, he wrote about all that Jesus began to do, What he's saying is that the story recorded in the book of Acts is not the story of what the apostles did or what really gifted men and women did or even what the church did. The story of Acts is essentially what the story, uh, it's the story of what Jesus continues to do on this earth. And so Jesus may have ascended into heaven at the very beginning of the story found in this book, but he has not stopped working in this world for even a moment. The only difference is Jesus has changed how he decides to work. So I just, I just want this to sink in and hit you hopefully like it hit me as I was putting this together. If, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, then what just this verse means for us is that now the way that Jesus instills value in the outcast and the way that he cares for the poor and the way that he feeds the hungry and the way that he reaches the lost is through us. That's what it means to be a part of this thing called the church. Church, as as often as this gets said, church is not fundamentally about um, attending one weekend meeting. 
It's not about trying to read your Bible for five minutes in the morning, and it's not about trying really hard to be a nice person. Being a part of the church means accepting the fact that you are a vessel through whom the risen Son of God continues his work in this world. And so if if you're anything like me and you desire to live, you know, if the idea of having a purpose in this life is really meaningful to you and excites you, I I just want to show you from the book of Acts here that, that all the purpose that you can imagine is waiting for you inside of this gathering of people that the Bible calls the church. But what that also means, if this is true, if it's Jesus's work that continues through the church, what this also means is that this can never be reduced to and it can never be driven by or fundamentally about our preferences. And so over the next coming weeks, as we begin moving through different passages and stories in the book of Acts, one of the things that you're going to see is that a lot of people, not surprisingly, had a lot of ideas about what they thought the church should be about and how they thought the church should be run, and who they thought the gospel should go to, and who should be included, and what people needed to do in order to be included in this thing. But time after time, what we see is that Jesus continually pushes people beyond their preferences because the church is governed by one thing and one thing only, and that's the risen Son of God himself. And one key theme in the book of Acts is Jesus' desire to break down all of the, the, the boundaries and barriers that mankind has set up really you know, since we've been around, barriers of, of race and class and background and, and, and all of that. And so, for instance, in, in chapter 7, what we read is that the gospel went to Samaritans which was a huge turning point for God's people because prior to that moment, Jews and Samaritans hated each other for some 800 years. And then after that, the gospel goes to Gentiles, which again was, was, was monumental because prior to that moment, Jewish people had been taught their entire lives to not even enter the home of Gentiles for fear that it would make them to simply be around those people would make them ceremonially unclean before God. And so I don't have to tell you, and I don't think it's real hard to imagine that when Jesus decided that he died for those people as well, and when he decided that those people were going to be welcomed into his family and Jew and Gentile were going to be made brothers and sisters by grace through faith in Jesus, that was not a comfortable thing for people. But what that means for us today some 2,000 years later is that in following Jesus, we should not be surprised when we find ourselves being challenged to love people that we would not ordinarily love and to accept people that we would not ordinarily accept, and to serve people that we would not ordinarily serve. Because if if Acts shows us anything, it's that from the beginning of this movement known as Christianity, Jesus has challenged his people beyond their preferences. And so being a part of the church means accepting that, because Jesus' work continues through the church. Now we see all of that in just the first verse of Acts, but if I could, I just want to pause here and highlight something. Evidently, the men and women that God used in the book of Acts were, were pretty successful in their calling to continue Jesus' work in this world. And the reason I say that is because here we are, 2,000 years later, standing in an area of the world that, that not a single person in this book other than Jesus even knew existed, and we're still worshiping the risen Son of God. And that's despite everything that these uneducated fishermen had working against them. They had, they had the Roman Empire on one hand, they had the Jewish temple system on the other hand, and they had this seemingly ridiculous message that they served a Jewish carpenter who claimed to be God, died, and rose again. And, 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 and evidently they were pretty successful 
in actually changing the world with this message that we now refer to as the gospel. So the question that the book of Acts raises for me is how is it that these men and women were so successful in what they were called to do? And, and where did the supernatural power to do this, to continue Jesus' work in this world, where did that power source actually come from? And Luke in these verses gives us two answers. The first is an event that happened on this earth. The second is an event that perpetually is taking place in heaven. And we're going to spend the rest of our time together this morning looking at both of these events. But before we do, I just want to make a bold promise to you that as we move through these two events and talk about what they, what they really mean, if you understand these events that's covered in just these first 11 verses in the book of Acts, if you understand them, not just in their historical setting, but what they mean for you personally, they will completely change your life. Amen. I, I cannot tell you how much I miss hearing somebody say amen when I yell something. Cameras never did that for 17 weeks. If you feel like saying amen, you can throw as many of those out as you want to today. So anyway, we're going to get right to our next idea, starting to look at this first event. This brings us to our next idea today. It's that the foundation of the church is the resurrection. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at just the first three verses here. It says, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he'd given orders through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And, and we're going to focus primarily on verse 3 here. It says, after Jesus had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, like I mentioned on the front end here, Acts is part two of a two-part narrative written by Luke, and he wrote it to this man named Theophilus. Now, we don't know a ton about Theophilus, but what we do know is that he was a sophisticated guy. He was a cultured guy. He was evidently an educated guy who was either a brand new believer or he was, he was investigating whether or not Christianity was true. And he was the type of individual that was not going to believe in Christianity if he felt that he had to check his intellect at the door to do so. And so what Luke is doing uh, in writing his gospel account and the book of Acts is he's essentially saying, listen, Theophilus, I'm writing these so that you can know that Christianity is true. So that you can know that this is not a belief system simply based on myths and legends, but that it's a belief system that relies on historical events that actually happened, namely this event that we refer to as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's, there's actually very few books in the New Testament that are specifically written to skeptical people, but Acts is one of them. And so, I, like I said, I just want to focus on what we see in verse 3 here. In verse 3, what we're told is that Jesus, after his resurrection, kept appearing to his disciples over and over again, and he gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. Now, that's a really interesting thing to me for Luke to, to, to say to Theophilus. Because a lot of people believe that, that, that you know, the book of Acts, the New Testament in general, and, and maybe the Bible in general, is a book that, that's written by and for relatively superstitious people. And so the thought process is that back in those days, you know, in the pre-scientific age, they were prone to believing in things like a resurrection without a whole lot of critical thinking. That's a fine theory to have. But when you take that theory and read it into the stories in the New Testament, you're going to find that it just doesn't hold up. What you'll find, maybe surprisingly to you, is that the men and women in the New Testament, they, they actually, they, they thought and they acted a lot like us. Because Luke doesn't say here 
that the apostles just heard that Jesus was raised or that they saw Jesus once and then said, hey, it's a miracle. It's really him. I'm ready to give my life to this thing. What he says here in these first few verses is that every time that Jesus showed up, every time that he appeared after his resurrection to his disciples, he had to continually prove to his, his disciples that he really was alive because they simply couldn't believe their eyes. And the reason that Jesus needed to do that is because while people in this time were more prone to believing in the supernatural, they were not more prone to believing in the resurrection. And, and, and here's why. If you look at the resurrection accounts of Jesus in, in the Gospels, what you'll find is that Jesus was not resuscitated. He was resurrected, and there's a difference. There's a huge difference. Right? A number of people throughout the Gospel accounts die and are resuscitated, meaning they, they die, their vital signs cease, but then they come back to life. However, they come back to inhabit a body that's still subject to death. And, and even today, there's, there's lots of, of accounts uh, that medically speaking are impossible to kind of dismiss, where we have an individual whose vital signs are completely non-existent. They are clinically, medically, scientifically dead, but for whatever reason, they get resuscitated. We refer to that as a miracle. However, those people go on to inhabit a body that is still subject to death, but it's different with Jesus. When you, when you look at the resurrection accounts, you'll find that every time somebody has an interaction with Jesus after Easter Sunday, at first they don't recognize him. And then they kind of do recognize him. Uh, but then Jesus, you know, he appears in, in rooms with locked doors, but then he can also eat fish. And, and what's clear is that there's something different about Jesus now. It's not just a repeat on the same body that he had. What happened is Jesus now had a body that was no longer subject to death. Now, Greeks and Romans in this day did not believe in the idea of a resurrection at all. Right? They, they held to this philosophy called Gnosticism, which believed that the body was bad and the spirit was good. So the idea of being resurrected back into a physical body, it was not something that they would have believed at all. all right, so, so, so maybe that raises the question for you, well, what about Jewish people? And, and, and here's... here's Here's the truth. Here's historical fact. Some Jewish people, not all of them, but some Jews believed that at the end of history, God would renew everything and, and, and we would get resurrected bodies. But what no one, and this is really important to understand, what no one, absolutely no one believed is that one individual could get their resurrected body now and just start walking around in the middle of a history that was still stained by the power of sin. That idea would have made no sense to either Greeks, Romans, or Jews. And so what I, the reason I walk through this, what I want you to see here, and what Luke wanted Theophilus to see here, is that these people that, that Jesus uses in Acts chapter 1 and is going to go on to use throughout the entire book, these people were just as biased against and skeptical to the idea of a resurrection as you or I would have been, which is why Jesus needed to appear to them over and over and continually give them many convincing proofs. But here's the thing. This is what history shows us. These same people who were so skeptical about the idea of resurrection on the front end went on not only to believe in the resurrection, but to suffer torture and to give their lives in some really unpleasant ways rather than deny what they knew to be true, which is that Jesus had legitimately been raised from the dead. And so here is the question, here's a, like a, a thought experiment that, that you and I should do in reading just these verses. If the people in Acts chapter 1 were exactly as skeptical as you or I would be to, to the reality of, of Jesus being raised, being resurrected, 
then, then the question we should ask ourselves, you should ask yourself is this. What kind of evidence would you need to believe that Jesus really came back from the grave? And whatever your answer is to that question, whatever evidence you would need to believe in this, evidently these people got that evidence. So, so my, my, my point in, in walking us through that is this. You and I should not think of, of Christianity as a belief system that demands we check our intellect at the door before we adhere to it and subscribe to it. Christianity is, is, is not a, a belief system based on myth and legend, completely devoid of all evidence. And when we think about Christians, we should not think about Christians today, and we should not think about Christians in the early church as a group of people who just held on to something via blind faith because they really wanted it to be true because it was just a really inspiring story. Because that's not what these people were like in Acts 1. These people did not believe that Jesus had been raised because they really wanted to. They believed because the evidence was so overwhelming that they were compelled to. And so what that means for us today, some 2,000 years later, and this is applicable for whether or not you've been in the faith for decades or whether or not you're investigating the truth of Christianity right now. What that means is the, is the first and the most important question that Christianity demands we ask is not, is this relevant to my life? You know, is this practical? Is it useful? Or, or is it going to be fulfilling to me? The most important question we should ask ourselves is, is it true? Is it true that this man actually died and came back to life? Because if that's true, then Christianity will be all those other things. I mean, think of it this way. Imagine if you could be certain that as broken as this world is, one day everything is going to be made right again. Imagine if you could be certain, even in the face of death, that on the other side of death is the everlasting love of God. Imagine if you could be certain of that. Nothing in this life would be more relevant or practical or fulfilling to you. But the reality is if the resurrection is true, then we can have that kind of certainty. We can be certain of all of that. But the first thing that we should do, the first question we should grapple with is the first question that these apostles grappled with, which is whether or not this man who claimed to be God legitimately did successfully predict and pull off his own death and resurrection because the foundation of the church is the resurrection. Now, what Luke tells us after this, in the middle of this passage, is, is that when the disciples were convinced that Jesus legitimately had been raised, that Jesus met with them and he taught them about this thing called the kingdom of God, we just spent some 10 weeks talking about that. In a sermon series called the Upside Down Kingdom. And so the disciples in hearing that asked Jesus that if at that time he was going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Which proves that they still had no idea what they were really getting ready to be a part of. But in response to that question, what this passage tells us is that, that Jesus, uh, he told them that they would receive power when his Holy Spirit came upon them. They would be his witnesses to the end of the earth. And then, the way Luke records it, as soon as Jesus put a period at the end of that sentence, he simply began to ascend, to just start floating up into the heavens. And so if you and I want to understand anything about the kingdom of God and why the men and women in the story known as Acts were so successful in furthering that kingdom, we have to understand this thing the Bible refers to as the ascension. This is going to be our next and it's going to be our final idea today. It's that the hope of the church is the ascension. If the foundation of the church is the resurrection, the hope of the church is the ascension. Now, now what, what, we've, what we find when we read about this event, the ascension of Jesus elsewhere in Scripture, is that Jesus did not just ascend into the clouds and evaporate. 
And now he's, you know, indwelling our hearts in some sort of, you know, ethereal sense. What we read is that Jesus, in ascending, ascended to the throne of God. And what I, what I wanted to do is give you two ways in which the ascension means everything. And two, two things that, if rightly understood in our lives, will legitimately change the way that we move through this life. And the way that we even enter into the next one. Now, now, as I do that, I just want to mention that when the Bible talks about the ascension, it uses a lot of images and, and, and pictures and metaphors to get across the transformation that, that has taken place in our relationship with God because of Jesus. Uh, but there's, there's two things that I want to walk through that the ascension means for us. Number one, it means sovereignty. Number two, it means advocacy. So first and foremost, the ascension means sovereignty. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, let me read this to you. Here's what it says. It says, he being God the Father demonstrated this power in the Messiah by raising Jesus from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put everything under Jesus' feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. What that means, the, the ascension of Jesus, it means that, that, that Jesus has gone to the throne of the universe and he is controlling everything in history for us as his church. That's what that just said. Now, when you couple that idea with what we read in Romans 8.28, Romans 8.28 says that all things work together for the good of those that love God. When you, when you couple those two ideas together, what this means is that Jesus is sovereign over everything, not just in history generally, but in your and my life personally. And he is, he is working everything out for your good. So everything that happens, not just the good things, but everything, even the bad things, Jesus is working in and he's working through to overrule it and have evil defeat itself in order to bring about a greater good that would have never otherwise been possible. Now you, you might ask yourself, well, what does that look like that Jesus uses bad things to accomplish a greater good? And there is no greater example of this than the cross at Calvary. What we see at the cross is that what looked like the greatest defeat in the history of the world wound up being the greatest victory in the history of the world. That, that the world and the devil had conspired against Jesus to destroy Jesus, and they did destroy Jesus. But all that led to was God's plan for salvation going to the ends of the earth, erupting across every nation, tribe, and tongue. And now, simply because of the seeming defeat of Jesus at Calvary, the gates of heaven have been thrown wide open for anyone who will call on his name. And so the cross is the model for how Jesus rules and reigns over history, and it's the model for how he rules and reigns over our lives, meaning he can take what looks like devastation and work it out for your good. And it's not just that he can do that, it's that he will do that, and he does do that. That is a promise that we have in Scripture. And so in this life, we might never see more than a millionth of exactly how Jesus does that, but we can hold on to that promise now simply because... The risen Savior has ascended to the throne. And, and so the ascension means that we can get up and we can face tomorrow no matter what we find there, knowing that Jesus is sovereign over it all, working it out for your and my good. First off, the ascension means sovereignty. But secondly, what the ascension means is advocacy. 
right, when, when the Bible talks about the ascension and Jesus ascending to the throne, what we have to remember is that in ancient times there was no separation of power, meaning that the, the, the throne was not just the place of power, it was also the place of justice. And so the throne was not just the throne room, it was also the courtroom. And here's what we're told in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. It says, but because Jesus remains forever... He holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is always able to save those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. I want to focus on that last part, that he always lives to intercede for them. The Bible says that when Jesus Christ goes to the hand of God, he intercedes for you and I personally, meaning essentially Jesus is functioning as our lawyer. So in the courtroom of God, if there is, any, if there is ever any charge brought against us, the Son of God is the one who handles your case personally. The Son of God is who intercedes on your behalf at the throne room of God before the bar of divine justice personally. And the way that Jesus handles your case the, the case that he presents on your behalf is described later in Hebrews 7, where we're told that Jesus sacrificed for sins once and for all when he actually offered up himself. Now, I heard a pastor explain it this way, and I've never thought about it this way. This was really powerful to me, and I hope that this means something to somebody else today. He said that when, when God first sent Jesus to the cross to die for our sins, that was nothing but mercy. It was mercy for God to send his son Jesus to the cross to die for your and my sins. But now that Jesus has died on the cross for our sins and ascended to the courtroom, Jesus is no longer asking for mercy for you because he, he doesn't have to. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, we read that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It doesn't say that he's merciful to forgive us our sins. It says that he's just. Here's what that means. It means that when we sin, Jesus goes to the Father, but he's not on his hands and knees begging God, please just give him one more chance. I know they swore they weren't going to do that anymore, but please just mercy. One more chance. One more time. Please don't destroy them in your wrath. That's not a very solid case that Jesus would be presenting for us. Instead, the, the, the picture that Scripture paints for us is that when we sin, Jesus intercedes before the Father on your behalf, and he says, Father, I know they sinned again. I know they sinned again. But I paid for every single one of their sins with my own blood. And it would be unjust for you to demand two payments for the same crime. And so I'm appealing to you on their behalf, but not, not for mercy. I'm not asking for mercy. I'm asking for justice. I'm asking that you recognize that my life has paid the price for every single one of their sins. That's the way that Jesus handles your and my case. That's the case that Jesus presents on our behalf before the bar of divine justice. And I don't have to tell you that is an infallible case. That's why Paul could say with confidence that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that no legitimate charge can be brought before any man or woman who puts their trust in the risen Son of God as their Lord and their Savior. And so because of the ascension, what this means is that we have a sovereign, we have both a sovereign ruler and a high priestly advocate, meaning we have no need to fear devastation in this life and no need to fear condemnation in the next. And it's all because Jesus has ascended to the throne of God. 
And what Jesus says in this passage, he, this, this should really mean something to you and I. Jesus commanded his disciples. He said, don't go anywhere. I need you to wait in Jerusalem for my father's promise, which is what, a phrase that he used to describe the Holy Spirit. He says, wait here. You're going to receive power when my Holy Spirit comes upon you. And the reason that that was so important, that they not just take off and start screaming this message to everybody with an earshot, the reason that they needed the Holy Spirit, the reason we need the Holy Spirit, is because it is the Holy Spirit's role in our lives to make everything that we've talked about today real to us so that we operate out of that power rather than our own. And when the Holy Spirit of God makes all of this real to you and I, when the Holy Spirit of God makes it real to us, that Jesus has died to take away every single one of our sins, that he has been resurrected and ascended to the throne of the universe, ruling over everything in this life, in our lives, working it all out for our good, and lives to intercede on our behalf so that we have absolutely no fear of our own sin condemning us and separating us from God ever again. When that becomes real to us, what that will always lead to is exactly what Jesus commanded his followers to in these verses. When what God has done for you becomes real to you through the Holy Spirit, what it will always lead to is you and I having a desire to go and to be Jesus' hands and to be Jesus' feet and to be Jesus' witness to a world that desperately needs to know what God has done for them through his son so that one more person can come to know all that we have in the risen son of God. Now, you've arrived at the end of the first church in the open, so I just want to leave you looking at this picture, and, and, and I wanted to offer you a quote that I found really, really moving and inspirational. But if I can, I just want to take a second and look at this final picture Luke recorded for us in, in, uh, in Acts chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. What we read is that after all of this, the disciples are basically just standing and staring up into the clouds that just received Jesus. And I think it's so amazing. I get to talk about this story now when we're outside. So you're, you're about as close as what it was like to be the apostles, just looking up. So we don't have a cloud in the sky, but they did. And they're looking for Jesus and they're wondering where he went to the point that angels kind of had to nudge them and say, hey, go do exactly what he just told you to do. Start moving. But when I read this, the more I thought about it, I, I, you have to sympathize with the disciples here because what they had just been through in about the last three and a half years had to be the most turbulent three and a half years that a human being has ever experienced. Let me just walk you through this as we close today. What, what these men in this story had just been through over the last three and a half years is they started following a Jewish carpenter who said things that no other rabbi ever dared say and could do things that no other, other rabbi could do. And they watched him open the eyes of the blind and open the ears of the deaf and even raise the dead to life. And so as they followed in his footsteps, slowly but surely, they began to believe the impossible, that this, this Jewish carpenter, he really was the one the whole world's been waiting for. He really was the rescuer here to redeem us. But then they watched as one of their own fellow disciples betrayed their rabbi and he was handed over to the Roman authorities. And he was crucified on a Roman cross until killed. And they watched their hope die. And the sky went dark and the earth shook and the rocks split and all of it. But then three days later when they thought the story was over, they saw an empty tomb with a stone that had been rolled away. And they, over the span of 40 days, they saw their redeemer, their rabbi, appear to them over and over with many convincing proofs. And the way that Luke records this story, Jesus didn't even give them an indication that, that, that this was the end. So they didn't have any reason to think it was. The way Luke records it, it's just Jesus stopped talking and started floating. 
And they had no idea what was going on. So for all they knew, Jesus was just jumping really high. So they're standing there looking up into heaven, waiting, you know, what, 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 what's next? And these angels, God sends these angels to tell them, hey, it, it's time to begin what he's called you to do. And in commenting on this, this exact passage, a man named, named John Stott, who's gone on to be with the Lord himself, here, here's what he wrote. And I want to leave you with this today. He said, it was the earth, not the sky, which was to be their preoccupation. Their calling was to be witnesses, not stargazers. The vision they were to cultivate was not upwards in nostalgia to the heaven which had received Jesus, but outwards in compassion to a lost world which needed him. It is the same for us. Curiosity about heaven and its occupants, speculation about prophecy and its fulfillment, and obsession with times and seasons, these are aberrations which distract us from our God-given mission. Christ will come personally, visibly, gloriously. Of that we've been assured. Other details can wait. Meanwhile, we have work to do in the power of the Spirit. Listen, I, I want to leave you with this before I pray. I, my, my heart's desire for everybody here listening on this field and online is that the resurrection would not just be the foundation of the church, but that it would be the foundation of your life because it's the only foundation that will never crumble. And my desire is that the ascension of Jesus Christ would not just be the hope of the church, but that it would be the hope of your life because it's the only hope that will never disappoint you. That's it. And that's all. Let me pray for us. Father, it is, it, is a, it is such an honor to be a part of your work in this world, to be the body, the embodiment of Jesus Christ, to be his hands, to be his feet, to be his witnesses, to be carriers of the greatest message that the world has ever known, a message so powerful that it can change where someone will spend eternity. There's no greater honor, Father. And just as the resurrection is the foundation of your church, God, my, my desire, and I know it's your desire, let it be the foundation of our lives. Let us build our lives off the reality that the Son of God has died for us and was raised three days later, never to die again. And just as the ascension was the hope of these first followers of Jesus, let it be the hope of our lives, Father. Let us root our hope and find our strength in the reality that nothing that, that you walk us through moves our Savior, our King, our Lord, one square inch off his throne. And he lives to intercede on our behalf so that we don't even have to fear our own hearts. We don't even have to fear our own weakness our own sin, and it's all because of Jesus. We love you. And it's in the name of your son we pray. Amen.